first importance. So the word importance refers to the fact of being of great significance. Um, it's, it's of great value would be what that word means. In today's scripture, we're going to be talking about the gospel as of first importance. As we go through what this message of first importance is today, I, I pray that you take some time to answer uh, th- three questions. I think they'll be up here. If not, they're in your handout. Uh, number one, okay, they're not up here. So, so it's in your handout. What is of first importance in my life? So what would you say, hey, this is of first importance in my personal life? And number two, like, how do I even discern what is of first importance? How do I rank? How do I figure out what the most important thing in my life is? And number three, what do I want to be in that spot? This first place thing, what, where do you, what do you want to be there? We all have something that takes that prime location in our life, that, that thing that everything else falls to the side when this certain thing happens. Everybody's got a different answer to that. You know, sometimes it's Jesus, and that's what it should be, the gospel, right? But a lot of times it might be a friend, a family member, a spouse, a loved one, a child. It may be your job as as of first importance. You know, church is here, but your job, you know, you you have to do this. Or it may be your child, or it may be something, you know, there's different times where we have to do certain things. But but what is that one thing in your life that when you are given a freedom uh, uh, to, to choose what is of first importance, when you're given that freedom, what do you do? What do you choose? Where do you go with that? And I pray that we answer that question as we read God's Word today. So turn it with me if you have your Bibles, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be reading 3 through 8. It'll be up here as well if you want to follow along with me. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time to, to, to celebrate together, that you died on the cross, but that you rose from the dead. Uh, Lord God, that the death had no hold on you, Lord. And as we get into your word today, as we spend time together worshiping you through, through singing as we've done and now listening and taking in this word that you have for us, Lord God, I just pray that you help us to, to celebrate today, uh, to know that we no longer have to be a slave to sin, a slave to death, and that we have deliverance and freedom that is found only in you, Lord. I pray that you clear our minds of all the things we may be thinking about, whether it's school or work or family even, all those things, the worries, finances, all the things that we can bring into church with us, into the Lord's house uh, with us, Lord, it can, it can distract us. And so I just pray that you take away those distractions, throw them away, and help us to focus on you and you alone. We love you, Lord. Amen. So as, as we discuss the reasons that the gospel is of first importance, I pray that it becomes more and more clear why you should trust the gospel. Uh, And the first reason you should trust the gospel, so you should believe the gospel because the testimony of the cross. Because of the testimony of the cross. And I'm going to read verse 3 for us again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So Paul delivered this message to the church of Corinth. And the the, the highlight of that idea that he gave this message to them is something for us as believers the message of the gospel must be proclaimed, right? They had to hear the gospel in order to believe the gospel. And so 
those must hear it in order to be saved by it. So I pray that, that we as believers are sharing the gospel with others. So what message did he deliver? Well, we'll get to that in a minute, and that's going to be most of what we talk about. But first, we need to understand that there are a lot of messages people can deliver, a, a, a lot of messages that people do deliver, right? I mean, we deliver news, so news of certain things, governmental mandates, uh, the weather even. I mean, there's all kinds of messages we can bring uh, out, but there's only one message that is of utmost and first importance. And this Greek word for first importance here means of first, first importance or most importance if we're looking. He wanted them to know that out of all the news in this world, out of all the things somebody may tell you, somebody may bring something that may seem really interesting, out of everything that somebody may tell you, this is the most important news you can ever hear. And this message that he delivered, he also received. So in order to give a message, we kind of have to have a message, right? Unless we just make something up, and that would not be good. I feel like a lot of people do that these days if you watch the news. But, but, but you know, th this message he was given, it wasn't just something he made up. It's not just something somebody told him. This is a message that he actually received from Jesus Christ himself. You see in Galatians 1.12, Paul says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's quite the statement, my friends. I mean, this is a big statement. Hey, I actually heard from Christ, and as we're going to talk about, he was actually a persecutor of the church. So this was a big statement for him to say. Like, what, what made him change? He was killing Christians, and now all of a sudden he's delivering the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel. So today we're going to break down this message and why it is a trustworthy message to believe. And verse 3 gives us the, the first part of this message, and it says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Wow, that's, that's quite a verse. So, I mean, there's just a lot of truth packed into that one small verse, one small part of that verse even. Romans 6.23 we see, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, here's the thing. God is a perfect God. And being a perfect God, he cannot be around sin. Sin must be dealt with, right? And he would not be a good judge if he just let sin go. He's like, oh, okay, I know, you know, whatever. You know, if, if somebody commits a crime and they stand in front of a judge and they let him go off, you kind of say, that judge isn't good. Like, he's, he might have been kind, but he's not good, right? You wouldn't call that judge good. Somebody murders somebody and they just let him go. You wouldn't think that was a good judge. You'd be like, oh, well, he's great, he's merciful or whatever. But you wouldn't call him good. And God is a good God. Yes, he's kind. Yes, he's merciful. But he's also good. And he does all of those things at all the time. It's not like he's kind here and then he's good here and then he's merciful. He's not like us where some days we're kind, some days we're not. You know, he, he's consistent. He never changes. So we're kind of in this predicament that we are all sinners. The wages of sin is death, which is hell is what that's saying. It, we, we, are, we are destined for there. So what does God do to be a good judge, but yet be merciful? He is fully kind, but he's also fully good, and he's fully just. And so we see John three sixteen, as many of you all have heard, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only, that whoever believes in should not, but have eternal life, right? So God was able to be good, kind, and merciful, because he took our, our, our penalty on the cross. And this was done in accordance with the scriptures. So what does that mean when it says that he died according, in accordance with the scriptures? And what, those, those scriptures that we're talking about are the Old Testament scriptures. And a lot of people are like, well, is the Old Testament really even that important? And you'll see even some modern day, I'll call them speakers instead of pastors, that, that will act like, oh, the Old Testament just doesn't matter. The Old Testament matters a ton because it points to Jesus Christ. And we're just going to hit three of those 
probably says because if I spent a time talking about all the prophecies of Jesus, we'd be here till next resurrection day and a year. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to hit three of them really quickly here, okay? So the first one is Genesis 22.8. Abraham said, God will, pr- will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, both of, so they went, both of them together. So Abraham was asked by the Lord to sacrifice his son as a test to see if he would do it, right? And so he's taking Isaac, he's got the wood, they're walking up the mountain in order to do this sacrifice, and Isaac, being a smart kid, smart young man, however old he, he was, we don't know for sure, he says, hey, where's the offering? Like, we're going up this hill, uh, you know, and what does Abraham said? He said, God will provide the offering. And so he goes in faith, thinking, hey, either he's going to resurrect my son after I, after I do this sacrifice or something else, because God's promised to bless the world through Isaac, through, through my offspring here. So I know he's going to do something. And what happens? There's a ram caught in the thicket. And so that ram becomes a substitute for Isaac, right? So Abraham goes in faith, is going to sacrifice his son. God steps in, shows mercy, gives this ram. This ram becomes the blood sacrifice that was required. Jesus Christ did that same thing for us. We should be going to be sacrificed, right? We deserve death. We deserve hell. And what happened? Jesus steps in mercifully and takes our place on that cross. There, there, there is no better comparison than that. I mean, it's just amazing just how beautiful God's, you know, God's mercy is. Even in the Old Testament there, as we see it pointing to this. And then we, cut, we go we move forward from Genesis. Let's go to Exodus 12. We talked about the Passover a few weeks ago. And the Passover was another great foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. In the Passover, if you all remember, Egypt is holding Israel into slavery, and they're treating them very badly. And God says, hey, he sends Moses, says, hey, let my people go. He tells them multiple times. And there's ten plagues that go, and this last one is the death of the firstborn. And what is, uh, if Pharaoh still continues before this is done, before God acts, he still continues to say, no, no, you can't go anywhere, you can't go out there. And so what happens? God says, hey, take a lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and take that blood and put it over your doorposts. And when the angel of death comes to kill all the firstborn in the land, he will pass over your home. It was just miraculous. It was amazing. So all the firstborn of Egypt die. And it's a horrible wailing, a horrible time that happens there in judgment because they refuse to obey God. But what happens to Israel? They're, they're all spared. And look at that foreshadowing for us. So they were spared one time by the Passover, right? The angel of death passed over them because of the blood of the lamb that was placed above their door frames. Well, we are spared from hell, from eternal death because of the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world, not just for one day, but for all eternity. How amazing is that foreshadowing of Jesus Christ that we see in Exodus 12? And then moving forward, we get to Isaiah 53, four through five. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions or sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds or by his wounds, we are healed. Who's that talking about? Jesus Christ, right? And so Christ took our sin and died in our place. The punishment that we deserved, the hell that we deserved, he took for us. And by his wounds, we are healed. And he did that 
while we were enemies, while we were sinners, he died for us. Wow, the testimony of the cross screams loud and clear. There is no greater love than what Jesus Christ did for us. There is nothing in all creation, all the world, that was more loving than what he did for us. And I pray that that great kindness of Christ, you know, yes, hell is a horrible place, and none of us really should want to go there. I mean, it, it will be eternity separated from God. It will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth, burning. It is a horrible, horrible thing. But we don't love Jesus because of avoiding hell. That is definitely a perk, a benefit of following Christ. But we love Jesus because he was willing to take our sin on the cross. His kindness leads us to repentance. He loved us so much that he sent, God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins so that by faith and trust in him, we may live forever with him in a joyous and just complete, completely wonderful relationship with him. And he suffered so much. If we know what really happened in Roman executions and crucifixions like this, even before he was crucified, he had been beaten by multiple people. He had, they'd put things over his head and said, prophesy, son of man, say who struck you. And he was beaten and marred and beat up. And then he gets 40 minus one lashings, which was Ro- Roman. The Romans were very cruel. And what they did is they figured out how many times they could hit you without you dying. And it was 40. Was, would, would be about when you did. The, the average person may die after 40, so they did 39. They took you right to that point. And after that, he carries a cross, a huge wooden cross, and he runs out of energy, and he falls down. Another guy has to take it the rest of the way, right? And that's before he's even crucified. And then he takes nails in his, in his hands and in his feet. And that's just what we see. We don't see the wrath of God poured out upon him. We don't see him taking on the sin of the world and abolishing death, going to Hades and stealing the keys of death for us. He suffered just such a terrible, terrible death on that cross. And he did all this so that those who would repent or turn away from their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone may have eternity with him. He did this to glorify his Father in obedience. My friends, you should believe because of the cross. Number two, you should believe the gospel because of the testimony of the Christ. You should believe the gospel because of the testimony of the Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the word Christ means anointed one. That's another word for the Messiah that we see in the Old Testament. And the Messiah was a promised deliverer for Israel. Uh, This Messiah would be their deliverer and he would come and rule the world in righteousness. Yet there were many scriptures that talked about this, this ruler that the government would be upon his shoulders and there were these wonderful scriptures that talked about his second coming, as we know. But they, t- they held on to those verses and they ignored the Isaiah 53 that we read about how he would be pierced for our transgressions. They didn't like that, that Messiah. They liked the Messiah that was going to come back and take over and deliver them from Rome and give them freedom and, and set them free. And so they were really excited. That's the Messiah they were looking for. And so as we talked about last week on Palm Sunday, he comes in and Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They got palm branches and they're saying, this is the king. He's, this is like God in the flesh. This is wonderful. And a few days later, right, Thursday, he's crucified because he's not the Messiah that they were looking for. My friends, is he the Messiah you're looking for? Are, are you looking for the Messiah that's going to deliver you and make you rich and healthy and everything's perfect? Are you looking for the Messiah that will fill that void in your life to make you feel great? Or are you looking for the Messiah that will save you, that wants a relationship with you, that died on the cross for your sins, and that demands your obedience and your allegiance to him? My friends, many people are looking for a Messiah that is their self. 
that, that is who they want to have and not who he actually is. Do you love him for who he is? Are you willing to submit and come to him as you are and respecting as he is and taking his word for what it says? I pray that you are. Because he was not the Messiah that they wanted, we get to these next four words in our English translation in verse 4, that he was buried. Right, He was handed over to be crucified. His earthly body was killed, he died, and he was buried, and he was placed in a tomb for three days. And as an aside, for those of you who struggle with the three-day thing, the, the Jews, the Jewish culture, what they would do is each day was a day, even if it was part of a day. And so it was the day of his crucifixion, the day in between, and the day of his resurrection. So it was three days. That's how they counted it. We may say, oh, that's not quite three. They just had a different way of counting their days. You'll see in there, they'll say eight days, and it's really seven, according to us. Although some have tried to refute the fact that Christ died, I don't think anybody really came with any integrity, even looking back at secular history. So as we've talked about, we've already talked about the abuse that he took on his way to the cross, and that he died. And then here we have professional executors. These guys, like, that's what they did. Like, what, what do you do for a living? Ah, oh, nail people to crosses. Like, that's what they did. Like, they recognized death, and they knew death. It's like, you know, uh, somebody that works in a morgue or somebody that works at a funeral home. I, I doubt they're going to miss the fact that somebody's dead or not. Like, I think that they are pretty good specialists at that. And so these guys, they take a spear, and they put it into his side, and he doesn't move. And blood and water comes out we see, to kind of symbolize, as we see, right, the, the, the blood covering our sins, baptism uh, is the water washing us from, 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 uh, from our sins, being that symbol of baptism there. These professional executors were experts in death, and they knew when they took him down that he was dead. They would have surely recognized a, fa <laughs> a fake death. They were, they were professionals. And it was at this point the disciples and the followers of Christ were stunned, because you see, the disciples even were blinded to this idea of him actually dying. And even, even their minds were like, what? What is going on? Like, here this guy is, he raised other people from the dead. He cast out demons. He healed people. He, he, he took blind people, made them see. He, he, he helped deaf people hear. Like, he, mute people that couldn't talk, he helped them talk. Lepers were cleaned or cleansed. And here's this guy that's claimed to be God, and he's dead. Like, what? How did, how did he actually die? How does God die? It's because he's 100% God and 100% man. The man part of God, Jesus, his body is dead. It has been killed for them and for us. They've been so blinded. And so there they were sitting around like, well, what do we do now? We've, we've spent the last three plus years following this guy, learning from him, doing everything we can to follow him and try to be like him. And now he's dead. So now what do we do? Could you imagine just the, the shock and the torment that they felt like, how, what do we do? We've given up our careers. We've given up all kinds of stuff. But praise God, that's not the end of the count, my friends. That is not where it stops. Three days later, my friends, three days later, he was raised. Death was defeated. The grave could not hold him down. He did not stay dead. Death lost its sting. Praise God for that. My friends, we no longer have to fear death because of what he did on that cross. I look around at so many Christian believers, and they're so scared of dying. I think COVID really showed it. Like, I've never seen so much fear among believers. My friends, we don't have to fear cancer or COVID because we have eternal life and victory through Jesus Christ. 
I'm not saying let's go and be unwise, but we should not live our lives in fear because death has been defeated. The sting of death is gone. The punishment that we should receive from our sins is cast away, and he stepped in in our place. We have victory. We may get arthritis. We may have strokes. Our body may decay, right? But we're going to be transformed. We're going to be given a new body, and we have that hope. And we should be the most confident people on this earth. So when, pe- when the world is crashing, when, when our stock market, when our retirement account falls out, when our health decays, we should be confident because we know who holds our future. We know who holds our eternity. It is Jesus Christ. It is not the federal government. It is not Putin. It is not anybody in this world that controls our future. We know that we may have rough times. We may struggle. We may suffer on this earth. But praise be to God. There is deliverance. There is true victory. And it may not be the victory you want to have right now. It may not be that victory that you hear some people preach about that's frankly a lie, that everything's going to go great. Because you know what Jesus said? He said, no servant's greater than his master. They persecuted me, and they will persecute you. Days are going to get worse. I'm just going to be honest with everybody here. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But praise God, it will get much better. There is a land that we will get to after we die, heaven, where there is no more tears, no more pain. No more COVID, no more cancer, no more bodily ailments, no more back pain. Can I get an amen? Right. Uh, so so, so th- there is a time where we don't, have to, we don't have to worry about those things. And again, it is accordan- in accordance with the scriptures that he says all of this. Jesus had even re- referenced scriptures like Jonah, who was in the belly of the great fish for three days and was spit out, right? And that is what Jesus did. He was in the belly of the earth and yet walked right out of that tomb. What kind of power was that? His victory was sure. It was not a surprise that he was crucified. It was the plan from the beginning. Genesis 3.15, it was the proto-evangelium, the first gospel, right after man fell. And even before that, God knew it was going to happen. He's, he's omniscient, meaning he knows all. He knew that they were going to make that error, that sin. They were going to do that. And he already had that plan in place. And just even tells them, hey, Jesus is going to crush his head. Death will be defeated. And there is no greater act or power in the world than what Jesus did. If we look further in this chapter, in verses 55 through 57, it says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus obeyed the law that we could not obey completely. We can't be perfect, but he was and he still is. We deserve death, but he took it. He took our place so that we might have victory in him. You should believe the gospel because of the testimony of the cross and the testimony of the Christ. And you should also believe the gospel because of the testimony of the community. The testimony of the community. That's our third point. I'll read these, these few verses here. Verses 5 through 8. And that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, then to twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So the first two points that we talked about are the most important two points. However, we would not know about those first two points if it wasn't for this last one, the community of believers who witnessed the resurrected Christ, and many of which wrote the New Testament. Let's break down these, these verses. There's, there's a lot of stuff here, and I just kind of want us to kind of blow through these so that we can kind of really see 
a, a big picture as the, the early community uh, here. So first we see Jesus appear to Cephas. For those of you who are like, who's Cephas? Well, that's Peter, uh, the, 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 the apostle, the disciple Peter. That's, that's Cephas is Peter in Aramaic. That was his Aramaic name. This was the disciple who was in that inner circle of Christ's disciples. He was the one that was quick to step up and, and just go at it, uh, sometimes for good, sometimes not so good, but he, he was very aggressive there. But he was also the one that went ready to fight for Jesus, cuts off a guy's ears, ready to go, to all of a sudden denying Jesus three times. This man who, who had st- stood st- so strong and said, hey, I'm going to be there till the death. I'm fighting. L- l- this is it. All of a sudden, he bows out at the end. And who does Jesus appear to first? It's him. How merciful is that? The one guy that Jesus should have been like, dude, you said you were going to do this and you didn't. Like that's how, that would be our response, right? Somebody says they're going to be there for you and you get to your worst part of your life and they don't show up and they, and they just bow out. Like that's the last person you want to see after it's over, right? You're like, no, man, I thought they were my friend, but they, they didn't show up. Jesus, that's the first person he shows himself to. How amazing is the mercy of Jesus Christ? The first person he shows himself to is the, fir- the person that, that, you know, d- denied him three times just a couple of days before. Then he appears to the twelve. And we, we understand the twelve is twelve minus one because Judas Iscariot obviously isn't with the group at that point, but they were just called the twelve. And then we see that Jesus appeared to more than 500 believers at one time. 500 believers at one time. So could you imagine a, a jury trial that brings 500 witnesses and says, yeah, I saw that dude, saw him. Saw him, yep, yep, I saw him. But he was dead, but yeah, no, I saw him. Uh, that is, that's the kind of data that we're seeing here. And you also have to think about the fact that he's writing this, and what does he say? Most of these people are still alive. So it's not like he's writing today saying, oh, yeah, 500 people, yeah, they saw Jesus after he rose. No, he is writing in a contemporary time. He's writing this, this letter to a church, a big church, a lot of people around, some of which, some of these people were the ones that saw the resurrected Christ, that are going to be there, right? 500 people is a lot. And so he's writing this, and he says, hey, I dare you, check my facts. Go talk to these people. Go ask Bob down the road. Go ask whoever, you know, probably different names than Bob, but you know what I mean. That's the Americanized version. Bob or Jim or whoever else, you know, go ask so-and-so. They saw him. What about that one? And he's so bold to say 500. It's not like he said, you know, two guys, a couple of my best friends, we saw him. Right? Like th- that, that would be a little bit more sketchy. 500 people to write to say, hey, there are 500 people that you can do. You can do an interview with them. You can go sit down, go talk to them. How amazing is that? I know there's a lot of fake news today, but he wanted to let them know this was not fake news. This was the exact truth. Then he also appeared to James. So this is not likely one of the two James that we see that are disciples of, of Jesus that follow him. This is actually the half-brother of Jesus, James half-brother because he was Joseph and Mary's son, and if you kind of do your, do the math there, God is the father of Jesus. So, so uh, if, you're, if you're trying to wonder, like, half-brother? I didn't know Mary was divorced. No, like, no, so, so it's Joseph's kid there, and, and we see that this James was a pretty big doubter. Actually, the whole family of Jesus was like, dude, this guy's crazy. So if we see uh, Mark 3.21, it says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they're saying he's out of his mind, and then we see in John 7.5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So this James, the half-brother of Jesus, goes from being like, I don't know, man, that guy's kind of, he's a little off his rocker. I'm not following him. You know, you got that sibling rivalry already, and now you got the perfect brother. I mean, think about that. That'd be tough growing up with Jesus. Like, why can't you be more like Jesus, right? You know, like that, that, that would be a tough way to grow up, right? And so James probably has some animosity because Jesus did everything right. 
And James obviously didn't. And so he's doubting. He's, he's walking away saying, no, I don't know about this guy. The same James ends up being a leader in the church of Jerusalem after Jesus dies. He ends up being martyred, killed from the faith, killed, uh, killed for the faith. They actually say that he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and beat with clubs till he died. And he took it and never disowned his brother Jesus. So what changed in James's life to go from being like, this dude's crazy, to saying, I will die for this guy? There is nothing that makes any other rational sense than he saw the resurrected Christ. Like, because he wasn't there, he wasn't there trying to protect him to keep him from crucifying him. And now all of a sudden, he's willing to die for him. How amazing is that? In fact, we actually see that 10 of the 11 disciples died gruesome deaths for Jesus Christ. And these are disciples that ran whenever Jesus was being crucified. They were like, tuck it and run. Like, they, they ran. They were like, I'm out of here. Even some of his most devoted one, ones there. The only one that didn't die, John, he's, he was actually sent to the island of Patmos. And they, a, lot of, a lot of the historical uh, you know, uh, records say they actually tried to kill him. He wouldn't die, so they sent him to that island. And then he ends up writing Revelation and John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then at the end of verse 7, we see that he also appeared to all the apostles. And some debate on who this exactly. Uh, we know it, it probably includes the 12, maybe a reference to Thomas, who was gone the first time Jesus comes, and then he's there the second time. Maybe a couple of others too, but it would all be speculation if we kind of kept going on. But verse 8, we see, lastly of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. This is Paul talking. And Paul says, hey, man, I, I have encountered the resurrected Christ personally. And he refers to himself as one untimely born. And this is actually the only place where this Greek word in the Bible occurs. And it's actually a difficult one to translate. It probably means uh, either a miscarriage or premature birth. And it refers to a life unable to sustain itself, a life struggling to survive. And this usually, this probably doesn't refer to, to Paul's actual birthday, because he was actually probably born within five to ten years of Jesus, plus or minus. They're thinking maybe probably more minus. And so it, it likely applies to his, when he was born again. When he, when he was converted. So he was untimely converted. And why, why would he say that? Because before he's converted, he's killing Christians. He's persecuting Christians, as we talked about before. And so he said, I am the least of these. I, I did, should not be here. I should not have get, been given revelation from Jesus Christ personally. I should not have been saved. I deserve hell more than anyone. I persecuted the way with zeal. Went to, I mean, he, he, took, he went to all kinds of different cities and would just watch people be killed or thrown into prison. And, and do it, do it, do it as well. But he knew that he had no hope of making it on his own. He was like an infant struggling to survive that just wasn't going to make it, yet Jesus Christ reached down and saved him. How wonderful is that? I know that we kind of blew through those quickly. However, there's no doubt that these men saw the risen Christ. When we look at even the historical record, not only even the Bible, but other historical records, the Bible obviously is the key. It is the inerrant word of God. Nothing outweighs what this says. But there's even so much other corroborating evidence. No one can deny that these men were changed. You can believe the gospel because of the testimony of the, cro the cross, of the Christ, and of the community. As we come to a close, I think we need to understand one more concept that's really important as we study the scripture. Interestingly, you may listen to the sermon and say, well, the church in Corinth really was having a hard time believing that Jesus rose from the grave. When actually that's completely inaccurate. Uh, they actually took that 
Because here's the thing, there were those 500 witnesses. They could interview those people, and they were like, hey, man, sounds, sounds like it's pretty legit to me. No, if we actually fast forward a little bit in this chapter, go down to verse 12, it says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? No, they actually, he was combating false teaching, saying that you're not going to raise from the dead. No, he believed that Jesus, or they believed that Jesus rose from the dead because it was obvious. There were too many witnesses. They couldn't even deny it. So the church in Corinth was like, okay, I get you. You know, I don't know many places we can get 500 plus witnesses to, to all agree on something. That's a lot of crazy people if they are. So we're going we're gonna to go with that. Okay, I get it. But, but we're not going to be raised. Like that doesn't make any sense. So Paul is actually talking about your eternity and my eternity and their eternity, not Christ. They, they, they took that for face value. My friends, Paul's talking to us as well here. We will all be raised either to eternal life with God in heaven or to eternal hell with Satan and his demons. So, so we have that choice to make, and it's our choice to make. God has offered forgiveness freely to all. All who come to him may be saved as he draws you. And he is the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. He is the one that took on our sins on that cross and died and three days later rose from the grave as we've been talking about. He's the God that's at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. God, the good judge, says, hey, their sins aren't covered. They deserve eternal punishment. Jesus steps in and says, hey, my blood covers them if we're right with Jesus Christ, right? We have to be right with Jesus Christ. He steps in, takes that, fills that gap. He's like, I took that punishment for him. I took that punishment for her. But if he hasn't, the good judge, the righteous judge, God, will throw those who are not a part of Christ, are not in Christ, to eternal torment. But those who's, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they've confessed that he is Lord. They've admitted that they are a sinner, that, that they want to go the way of Jesus. And I pray, I pray that you can answer that question. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Is he of first importance in your life? I pray that your answer is absolutely. He is of first importance. Because here's the thing. He doesn't take, take passenger seat. He doesn't take back seat. He doesn't play second fiddle. He must be the Lord of your life. And I pray that you can say, yeah, he's, he's of first importance. I don't always do it right. I sin. We all sin. We, we blow it. But, but when I look at my life, he is of first importance. I pray that you can say that in your own life. If you, if you haven't, and you're like, man, I, I don't know. I don't know if he's of first importance. I would love to talk with somebody if they're struggling with that question, saying, I'm not sure. You know, yeah, I, I've heard these things, uh, but, I, but man, I'm feeling like he's drawing me to him. I'm realizing that I have not went all in. I, I, I maybe have a, a head knowledge, but I don't have a saving faith. A saving faith is being born again. You're, you're given a new heart and a new mind, and, and you, you want different things. You desire the things of him, of heaven, of, of the word. You desire to be obedient to him. You don't desire any longer that to kind of continue going in the flesh. Yeah, there's the flesh that will continue to fight, but there's an inward desire saying, oh, okay, I want to go your way. If, if you answer that question, you're like, man, I, don't, I know the gospel, but I don't know the one of the gospel. I don't really know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. My mom or dad, or maybe I went to church growing up, I maybe heard a little bit about it, but I haven't really come to a saving knowledge. I would love to talk with you. Brother Jim would love to talk to you, or, or Adam, or anybody that's here. We'd, we'd love to talk to you after the service. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the cross. 
For those of us who are believers, God, thank you so much that we, that, that, that we have you as our Lord and Savior, as our uh, intercessor, Lord. We continue to blow it, and we'll never be perfect. Uh, but, but, Lord, our sins are covered by your blood. We thank you so much for that. For those of, for, if there's anyone here that does not know you, Lord, I would love to talk to them about what it means to follow you, to be saved. If there's anybody here that hasn't been baptized and say, hey, you know, I've made that profession of faith, I, I've walked that walk, but I haven't followed you in, in believer's baptism. I, I'd love to talk to them about that as well. Oh, Lord, help us to go throughout this Resurrection Sunday celebrating that you are risen, God. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, and uh, we just ask that you help us to have a, a wonderful week glorifying you and making much of you. Amen. Have a blessed week.